Hello, everyone. Wow, that was a bad start. Hello, everyone. Welcome to FSU Coach Live. My name is Tim Baghurst, and my today's guest is Mark Egner. He is the head field hockey coach at Dartmouth College. Mark, thanks for joining me. Most people in the U.S., they hear the word uh, hockey, and they think ice. Field hockey is a little bit different, so if you wouldn't mind, give us a little bit of background of, of how you got to where you are today. If you just as a, an introduction, and then we'll get into some fun questions. Sure. Well, thanks, first of all, for having me, Tim. I'm delighted to be here and to get to share a little bit of my story with people. Um, I am not American, although sometimes my friends back home tell me that I have adopted a bit of an American accent over the years. I'm originally from Cork in Ireland, um, which is the second biggest city in, in the Republic of Ireland in the southwest. I grew up um, about a half a mile from our field hockey club there, Cork Harlequins. And ever since I was a little kid, this was the sport that I was involved in. Um, I studied to be a, an elementary school teacher um, and I studied in Dublin for a number of years. And that was kind of where I got into coaching adults. And then through my work there, I was able to work with our regional and junior national teams in Ireland. And having seen a number of those players come to the U.S. to get the opportunity to participate in the NCAA, I said, hey, this is something I'd love to give a go. And I got really lucky back in 2013. I had the opportunity to come and work at Longwood University in Farmville, Virginia, as an assistant coach. And after two years there, I worked at the College of William & Mary in Williamsburg, Virginia, for five years. And then since March of this year, I've been the head coach at Dartmouth College up here in New Hampshire. Since March of this year, that sounds like a, a fun experience <laughs> moving right at the beginning of COVID and then trying to have a season. It was definitely not what one would have expected. I think I'll remember this forever that about eight or nine days in, our athletics director told us all in a staff meeting that we were going to be canceling spring sports. And I turned to the person next to me and I said, this is my eighth day as a head coach and our <laughs> director just said in his 39 years in athletics administration, this was the biggest thing he'd ever encountered. And I was like, man, if this is week one or week two, what's, what's ahead of me? <laughs> yeah. Now I, I mentioned field hockey being a little different to, to ice hockey. You know, my experiences obviously growing up in, in England and Wales. Yes. I know what field hockey is. Yes. As a left-hander, it drove me crazy because there were never any left-handed sticks. So, <laughs> Can you just give us a, a little bit of a background about what field hockey is? Because I, I imagine some people have never seen it before. Sure. So field hockey is a team sport. It's um, in many ways an invasion sport. It's similar to soccer, rugby, that you start at one end and you want to get to the other end to score goals. Um, the field is 100 yards by 60 yards, and it's broken into four quarters. And you can only score from a circle that is about 16 yards around the goal that you're attacking. There's no offside. There is unlimited rolling substitutions, so you can exchange players as often as you want. And it is one of the biggest sports in the world, which is hard to believe living here in the U.S. Um, it's played around the world by men and women, but in the U.S. it's primarily played by women. It's a stick and ball sport. So as you mentioned, we have um, a single-sided stick, which is about three feet long and is smooth on one edge and then very curved on the back edge. And you're only allowed to play the ball with the, the flat edge of the stick. Um, trying to think what other bits differentiate it. Um, it's, I think if you were to try to compare it to a sport, 
Here in the US, people regularly compare it to lacrosse, but I think it probably bears a lot more resemblance to soccer in terms of the tactics and things that are involved. But there is a, a large amount of um, hand-eye coordination involved as well. And it's an Olympic sport as well. And let's let's talk a little bit about collegiate field hockey because is scholarships available? Do you have to go recruit? How does that work? Yeah, so it is a, a collegiate sport here in the US. So it's sponsored at all three division levels. Um, depending on the level that you're involved in, whether it's division one, division two, or division three, there are different amounts of scholarships that are available for different purposes, the same as every other sport. Um, there are currently, I think it's either 78 or 79 division one field hockey programs. And we're spread across, I believe it's 10 conferences. So we have um, at the scholarship level, we have up to 12 full ride equivalencies available per school. So they can be allocated in percentages or in full rides. Or where I work in the Ivy League, um, because of the Ivy League's rules and regulations, we don't offer athletics-related scholarships. So um, say that again, you don't offer what? There's no athletics-related scholarships within the Ivy League. So we operate on, on a purely financial aid-based um, approach across all of athletics. So how does that, how does that impact your recruiting? Um, it definitely plays into it. We have... Um, pretty stringent academic standards. Um, obviously, the Ivy League speaks for itself from an academic standpoint. They're sure. some of the most reputable schools in the country and in the world. So there is definitely a, an element of demand. And then they have um, quite a large amount of need-based financial aid available to families. So basically, if we were to try to recruit you, Tim, and I thought you were good enough to play at the Division One level, we would have a conversation. And early in that conversation, I would articulate that we are a little different in the Ivy League. We don't offer scholarships. So here's um, you know, our financial aid calculators. You can go and check them out. And then you need to decide as a family whether or not this is a, fin like a, a fiscally viable option. And for some families it is, and for some families it isn't. And I think that that is common and consistent across all forms of sport. Um, I remember during my interview process, someone asking me if I thought this would be a challenge. And I said, well, Having worked at scholarship schools, sometimes I'll say to somebody, hey, you're worth a quarter of a scholarship or a half a scholarship, and then it's an element of value and how good do I think you are? Whereas at an environment like this, I say you're either good enough or not. Hmm. Now, it's up to you whether or not, you know, this. it's up to you and your family situation as to whether or not this is a financially viable solution. But I can only bring a certain number of people in here to help us with our program. And you're someone that I think can really make a difference. So we want to support your application. What challenge? You, you, yeah, yeah. You said you can only bring in a certain number of people. How many? How many athletes do you typically bring in per year? Either um, for where I am, it's going to be either five or six. We're going to carry a roster of somewhere in the region of twenty-two athletes okay. across Division One. We see rosters getting up close to thirty and as low as twenty-two, twenty, somewhere in that range. Mm -hmm. And generally, we're looking at five to eight athletes per school per year. Um, which isn't an awful lot of people. From um, a little bit of research, it looks like about 2.5% of people who play field hockey at the high school level get to play at the Division One level. So it is quite a selective recruitment process. Mm -hmm. um, it's quite competitive, but there's also a lovely um, kind of similarity to the schools that offer field hockey. So generally, if you're in a recruiting conversation with somebody, you can almost guess who the other five or six schools are 
because they have some of those same similar um, attributes, whether it's school size, academic standards, the um, place that athletics plays on their campus, but you, you end up seeing a lot of similarities. So while we're on recruiting, let's, let's stay there. Everybody's trying to recruit this athlete, right? You, you talked about me. Uh, you can recruit me, Mark. Um, when, when you look at recruiting, knowing that other programs are trying to recruit me, is there, is there a particular style of recruiting or do you have any strategies or advice for those who are recruiting or, or going to be recruiting as coaches that you found are successful or, or work for you? Absolutely. I think um, recruiting is essentially about relationships and it's the start of a relationship that you're going to have as a coach and athlete. I think oftentimes there's a lot of um, kind of shady behavior that happens in recruiting where people hold back and don't tell the truth. And the most important thing that we do here is we're honest, genuine and upfront in our communication and we tell the truth. Um, and that I think is going to reap dividends in the future. We try our best to make real, deep, meaningful connections with our students that we're recruiting. And if they make the decision to go elsewhere, we celebrate that because they have chosen where they want to go. And um, there's a movie, Draft Day, that came out recently. And there's a line in that that I tell every recruit, you know, if you do this right, you should only do this once. So enjoy it. Enjoy the process. Don't be afraid to ask questions. And when I talk to recruits, I tell them that there's never going to be a time in your life where you're going to be headhunted by the CEO of some of the top organizations in your in your field. So enjoy that experience. Enjoy being in demand. Enjoy being, um, you know, being chased. But in terms of what we do, uh, I focus on five things. The first is their academics. Every school has um, academic thresholds that they have to operate within. Then we look at their technical ability, their tactical understanding, and their physical capacity. Those are the things that we look for when we go and we watch them play in person, we evaluate on film, and then we talk with our coaching staff about whether or not we think we have the capacity to help them grow. And then the last piece is their character. So those are our kind of five top things. And our academics and character are the ones that we won't sacrifice on. So by character, when we talk about that, we tell them that we, one, we have a no jerks policy. I don't want to be stuck with somebody that is going to be a jerk and be a pain to be around. Two, at some point in your four-year career, you're going to have a bad day. On that bad day, when you come by my office to tell me your story and to tell me what's happening, I want to be able to support you. I want to be there for you. I don't want to roll my eyes and say, oh, here we go again, Tim. What, what have you done now? And to be able to do that, I need to know who you are and I need to trust you and you need to trust me. And those things are incredibly important. So as we go down that process, we start early by looking at players, looking for them when they play and seeing if we can spot their technical, tactical and physical components. From there, as we start to get to talk to them, once we're allowed from an NCAA standpoint, as quick as we can, we get a read on the academics to get a feel as to whether or not they're the right kind of person for us. And all the way through that process, we're looking at who they are, whether or not they am, you know, whether or not they, they're someone who we think is going to be a good fit for our program culturally and is going to have the kind of character that we look for. So some of the things that um, I've talked about with other coaches, because recruiting is actually what I did my thesis project on for my master's was uh, whether or not at the end of a game, they're carrying their own bag or their parents are doing that for them. Mm -hmm. uh, their parents are a big part for a lot of coaches. What, what kind of a voice are they in the stands? Um, when they come on a recruiting visit or when we talk to them, can they have a conversation with us? Are they able to 
communicate effectively with adults and can we start to get to know each other because at the end coaching is about relationships so being able to develop that relationship early means that we're going to be able to have a trusting and strong relationship later in life mm. field hockey is as you mentioned not a very well-known sport in the u.s a lot of programs uh, probably certain geographic areas as well when you when you look at recruiting you mentioned that most of the players are overseas How, do you recruit overseas given that a lot of those players are more likely to have been playing their entire lives as opposed to maybe some some of the u.s players who may be introduced to the the sport later on i think um we're seeing that as a trend in our sport where people are looking at international athletes as a way to almost get a quick fix in their program and to mm -hmm. turn things around quickly I think um, I think there's a couple of bits to that. The first is that what we're offering is an academic opportunity first and foremost. And I think that that has to go to people who are deserving of that opportunity. For the last number of years, I've been a, um, an assistant coach in the junior national team setups here in the US. And I do feel a responsibility to help um, develop young, um, young American talent. Mm. But I am also responsible to my institution and my job is to win games. So there's a, a blend and a balance that I think has to be established. We're seeing some programs that are going quite heavily in one direction or another. And I think you have to find the right blend for you as a coach. Mm -hmm. One of the things that would attract me to bringing in um, recruits from overseas or when we talk about that character, there's a, an element of gratefulness that maybe um, they have a, because this is so different to their experience overseas, they just really enjoy it and are so gracious that that's something that's a really beneficial thing to have within your program. As you mentioned, maybe they've been playing the sport a bit longer, so they might bring a little bit more um, decision-making capability. One of the things that I think is a key differentiator in that is that when I go and I watch a U16 game here in the US, we only ever see 14 to 16 year old athletes playing with 14 to 16 year old athletes. There's nobody on the field who has a bank of and a depth of decisions that they have stored up and that they are able to apply to that scenario. So the voice we hear most often is the one on the sideline. Well, ultimately I want a team that's going to be able to solve their own problems when they're out in the field. So when I compare that to my experience playing, when I was about 13, I was playing with former internationals who couldn't run anymore. And, you know, they were falling down the ranks within our club. And my job was to do what they told me. So I was learning from all these different voices around me. And that helps me to understand the game. It helped me at the time. And I think if you can bring in some players who've had both experiences, then that blend of decision-making ability, that blend of experiential learning that you're bringing onto the field is only going to benefit a team. But I do feel that, you know, it, it doesn't really matter to a large degree where you were born or where you're from, but it's whether or not you're able to meet the challenges of the situation. So the American athlete is used to the condensed full sport season that we have, where and to training five or six days a week and to being together and being very intensely in a team setting. A an athlete from another country, maybe sport is a recreation for them. It's something that they do in their free time. And if they're a little stressed with life or with school, they might take a day off. And you have to have that understanding of what the environment you're going to bring them into is and whether or not you think that they're going to be able to be successful in that environment. 
So great answer. You got a lot of a lot of little gems in there that I think are, are worth going back and 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 listening to again. Now you you work with um, a group of young women, and you said about twenty to twenty five, correct? Right now we have twenty on our roster. Yeah. Okay. They don't all play. They don't all start. And and I think that's a challenge for any coach. Is how do you make sure that 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 the athletes on your team are all pulling in the same direction when some of them um, maybe are dropped during the season because of various reasons and so may not be happy about that or some may not ever get a chance to be on the field or if they are, it's for the kind of dead time at the end. How do you make sure, what do you do to help those athletes all work together to make sure that the team is placed above their own individual wants and needs. You're really coming with the hard ones here, aren't you? <laughs> I warned you. <laughs> no, I think the first thing is that a lot of that work starts early. And um, I think about Nichols' theory of motivational climate, which is that you're either going to be um, com- like comparing yourself to your teammates or comparing yourself to who you were yesterday. And if we can send the signals within our environment that we want to be um, task-oriented rather than ego-oriented in that environment, so we want to be comparing ourselves to who we were yesterday, um, our version of success is tied to our feeling of development, then we can chase excellence for you on the sideline. You know, you, you can come into practice, we can sit and we can have an honest conversation about where you stand right now, and then we can say, we need you to grow in these areas. These, these are things we want you to grow in. So one of the things that we'll do is we have individual performance plans for all of our athletes where they have um, self-referenced ideas of how strong they think they are. And we do a little bit of work with the psychological characteristics for developing excellence. And then we tie that into what their goals are. And that's the first step is we give them a developmental track. Because I think oftentimes we look at development and we look at performance as things that have to happen at separate chunks of the year. And if we do that, well, then we say, okay, well, you've got the spring to get better. And if you don't do enough in the spring, well, then you're never going to play in the fall. And I don't think that that's fair because that means that in the fall, we're dealing with problems. We're dealing with situations you talked about. The second piece is that I think oftentimes we want to be able to turn to people who have experience in challenging moments. Now, that's wonderful to say, but you don't get experience by sitting on the bench for two or three years. You get experience by being put in situations and being given the opportunity to experience and to learn, to make mistakes and to grow. So the first place we can do that is by creating realistic and like complex variable problems at practice and giving people the opportunity to solve those in training and opportunity to reflect on that process so they can grow, but also putting them in that situation in a game. Now, in much the same way that we might scaffold someone's learning when they're, you know, learning to read, we can scaffold their learning when they play. We can put a freshman in at right back with a senior at center back and a senior at right mid and a senior at center mid so that they have great supports around them. And they're given the opportunity to play. And then when they come off, we can make sure that they have supports and and opportunities to reflect. So some of the things that we'll do there, we'll have individualized video review sessions that will be athlete-led. So as Tim's played at the weekend, Tim will log on to our video hosting site. 
he'll go to the game and he'll see all the moments he was near the ball. And then he has to watch those clips and then come and make an appointment with one of the coaching staff to talk about the two or three clips that he thinks are most important. Mm -hmm. So what we'll ask you to do, first of all, is to write down how you thought you, the game went, how you thought you played, then to watch your clips, and then now to reflect again as to how you thought you played. And then which clips do you think are important enough that we need to talk about them so that that 15 or 20 minute meeting is really intentional and really worthwhile. And I think if we do all those things, then you feel like, hey, I'm getting feedback, I'm seeing where I need to grow, and I can understand my place in this team. And then I think it's just really important to have that healthy relationship between player and coach that you can say, hey, Tim, we've been talking about this. What do we? What did I say to you at training this week? You said I need to do this, 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 and this. So why are you telling me you don't know why you, you're, you're not playing? Because I told you what you need to do, and you're not doing those things. But by making it a conversation and by making it apparent that you're investing in that player and that you want them to succeed and that you're going to work with them to grow, then I think that's really important. So when we talk about those things with our players, over the last number of years, I've when I was an assistant, I reframed my position to the team as I'm not assistant to the head coach. I'm assistant coach. My job is to help you. My job is to help the head coach. And second of all, I will double what you give me. But if you do the math, guys, and you're all in college, so you should be able to do multiplication. If you give me zero minutes, if you give me zero effort, and I double that, no matter how hard I try, it's going to be nothing. But if you tell me you want to give me 10 minutes of your time, I'll put 20 minutes into preparation or 10 minutes into preparation and then 10 minutes with you. If you tell me you want to do 30 minutes on the field, same thing. 30 minutes in prep, 30 minutes on the field with you. We'll, we're going to get good work in here. But it's about that um, opportunity to, to grow, experience, and reflect. And then that relationship with the coach that I think can really help with that. But in honesty, we're never going to get it 100% right. That sounds fantastic. But there's going to be moments where you're going to have challenges and clashes. And being able to kind of talk through those situations is really important. So um, at a previous institution, we had a player who came into me at the end of our first game of the year and was quite disappointed that she hadn't gotten as much playing time as we thought she would. And we sat and we had a conversation about where she was. Did she think that she deserved to be starting ahead of all these different people? No. Okay, great. We're in alignment there. So now you want to chase and you want to be this person on the team, the first one off the bench. What are the things that your position group is being told at practice? Great. Do you think you're doing those? I think I am some of the time. Mm -hmm. I don't think you're doing them well enough. So let's work now at finding ways for you to do them better so that you can be in a situation when, when you're put in, we know we can trust and rely on you. I don't get short answers, Tim. I hope that that's okay. <laughs> hey, means I have to speak less, um, which is always a good thing. Now, uh, turning then to the fact this is your first year as head coach, unusual year right we, we we all know that and uh but but one of the things i think is a challenge for a head coach especially a, a new one and we've had some on this, this this interview um before is hiring assistants or volunteers and the process for that and what you look for in somebody as an assistant coach or a volunteer coach can you can you elaborate a little bit about how you go about finding the best people that, that fit within your coaching philosophy. Man, you are just coming at me today. <laughs> so we just went through this a couple of times over the last couple of months. Um, and I'll be honest, I think that the traditional model of hiring assistant coaches is broken because 
you're asking them to do a job that you don't evaluate their ability to do during the application or interview process. Now, well, okay, let me let me back up. Well, you mean you mean as an assistant coach, you don't get to observe me being an assistant coach in a typical interview process. I just give you the right answers. Yeah, I think in general, you come and we sit and we have a conversation and I ask you questions and you tell me what you think I want to hear. Uh, you meet tons of people and they all ask you the questions that they think are important. And then you arrive on day one and we teach you how to do the job. And as a first time head coach, I'm not in a situation where I'm really chasing after people I need to teach how to do everything. I'm, I need people who can hit the ground running and who can bring a level of expertise and strength into what we're doing and help this program grow quickly. So looking at that and operating within the NCAA restrictions, which are the when you're on an, a, a coaching interview, as far as I'm aware, we're not allowed to have you coach our student athletes. I believe in some sports it's different, that you can work them through a workout, or if you're a strength and conditioning coach, maybe you could lead a session with a couple of athletes. So I had to look at what are the, um, the other aspects of the job that we can check for. So when we went through this process recently, um, I looked at our kind of game schedule for the fall, and I said, oh, we were due to have one standalone game. So let's take that standalone game as our weekend that we're preparing for. I gave everybody 48 hours from the time that they scheduled for their Zoom interview. I worked backwards two days and said, right, here's the deal. We've got a game against this opponent this weekend. I need you to put together the travel itinerary. I need you to plan out the trip. This is your budget. This is how many people are traveling. This is, you know, everything you need to know. This is our time that we have to practice at their facility, et cetera. Do that piece. Then I need you to do a scouting report on that team. Here's access to so many other games from last year. If you don't have it, um, be prepared to present for 15 to 20 minutes during our Zoom meeting and to share what you've seen. And then I need you to prepare a, pra a practice plan for this amount of time. Now, unfortunately, earlier in the week, I used up a little bit more of our CARA than I thought we would. So we have less time than we usually would to practice. So how are you going to adapt to that? Here's how many staff members we have. Here's how many players we have. And I can't remember whether or not I said one of the girls was injured. You know, we, we tried to throw some problems at them. And then everyone was given the same amount of time to do all that work. Now, some of them were given eight games and watched all eight games and came back with a really detailed scouting report. Some people came back with it, watch one game. And that's okay, because that shows me what I would likely be getting if we hired you. You know, if I give you, if we hire the person who watches all eight, Maybe they're going to be really detail-oriented, but are they going to be able to ma manage their time well enough to get everything done? If we hire the person who watches one, are they going to see enough in that one game for us to have a really accurate plan for this team? And then all of our applicants watch the same opponent, watch the same stuff. And then it was really interesting to see what are the commonalities and what are the differences? And are they right to be acknowledging those differences or are they seeing the wrong things? And then when they wrote their practice plan and they talked us through what we would be doing at practice, I was listening out for some key phrases. We're doing this because dot, dot, dot. I was looking at what kind of exercises they were planning to see whether or not that fit with my um, pedagogical approach or whether that was an area I thought we might need to change and adapt and grow if we did work together. And then all of that combined to give me a picture of what kind of a coach is going to walk in the door. 
Then when we hired our assistant, um, the first thing I did was I asked them to give me a list of what they perceived their biggest strengths were and what areas they felt they needed the most growth in when it came to their role within the program. And then the things that they said they needed the most growth in, we provided them with support from other staff members within the athletics department and gave them ownership of those things. So they became things that were their job. So they got the opportunity to grow and work on those things so that they felt they were growing as a coach. So you asked at the start what I look for. What I'm looking for is somebody, one, who wants to be a coach. I think a lot of people get into coaching because they played the sport for so long in their life, they're not ready to let go of it. And I don't think that that's a, a, it's a good quality in a coach, but that shouldn't be the reason we coach. This is an other-centric profession, and staying in it because you're not ready to let go, that's pretty egocentric. That's about you. Second thing is you have to have a love of learning because you have to be open to changing and growing and learning new things. And if you can demonstrate that either in your resume by showing me what you've been doing to learn and grow as a coach or in how you interact in our settings, well, that's gonna be really interesting for me because I want this to be a learning environment. I came to work at an Ivy League institution because this is where some of the brightest minds are. I wanna experience those people and I wanna have them impact our program so we can be at the cutting edge. To do that, we need people who wanna learn. And then the third part is people who are going to work hard. Now, I do think a work-life balance is something that's hard to find as a coach and something I've struggled with over the years. And since coming here and moving into a pandemic, it was a great opportunity to hit pause on my work part and add some bits into my life part and try to keep those blended when we got back together. But being able to tell my assistant at five o'clock, hey, put your phone down, like close your emails. I don't want to hear from you until 8 a.m. or 9 a.m. tomorrow. We work six, seven days a week. When we were in a regular fall, we're going to be on the road a lot. When we're in the winter and spring, we're going to be recruiting. When you have downtime, take it. Don't work. And in a way, it's been really interesting to see a lot of myself in my assistants where they're like, oh, no, I kind of want to keep going. And I'm like, well, I'm going to want you to keep going in 12 months' time. So slow down. The only the only caveat to everything you said is that uh, the brightest minds in coaching are not at Dartmouth. They happen to be at FSU. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, I do also think that there is an element of fit. You know, is this individual going oh for sure living in this town, working mm-hmm. in this institution, and sadly, you know, um, is the financial situation going to be a match for both parties? Because mm-hmm. Coaching is a is a profession, and as such, you should be remunerated and compensated. Um, and you have to be able to balance your bills. And you know, with people being fresh out of college or recently graduated, they probably have a couple things they need to pay off. <laughs> and you know, making sure that they can do that is important. What would you say, you know, as a coach, the the three hardest things that, that you have to deal with as a coach are? And that maybe, you know, those who are looking to get into coaching or, or even improve as coaches need to kind of be aware of or thoughtful of. Um, from your experience, what, what three things do you find the most difficult? Hmm. I think expectation management is challenging because everybody who gets recruited to play at a Division One level has been told that they are fantastic. Mm. You know, best player on their team. And then they go from maybe never having seen that thing, they put their backpack on at the start of a game and pick their backpack up to now I have to sit on this thing or, you know, I'm meant to be yeah. over here. 
outside the field. So being able to balance the recruitment of an athlete, which is where you probably have to tell them what you think they have the capacity to do with the reality that they're going to arrive into and still win a recruiting battle is a challenge. And I think oftentimes we see a lot of people telling lies in that process to get the kid in the door. And then the kid doesn't get the experience that they want or that they thought they were going to get. But being able to manage expectations, I'd say, is one of the most challenging things as a coach because um, you asked me earlier about managing playing time and all those kind of things. And the analogy I use is like if we had a pizza party and we had 16 slices of pizza and we invited 20 people, the first time we did that, people would probably enjoy each other's company enough that, yeah, I'm, I'm okay that I didn't get one of those slices. But if we do that 18 weeks or 18 times over 10 weeks and you're turning up hungry and leaving hungry every day, it's really hard to motivate you to come back to the pizza party the next week and for you to enjoy watching your friend eat pizza. And I mean, when you talk about it in those terms, it's really hard to, to think, why would they want that? So managing expectations is one of the challenges. Um, I think that goes beyond the athlete too. That goes to, uh, as a coach, managing up to manage the expectations of the people you work for and managing out to manage the expectations of the parents and the alumni and all of those people to, you know, everybody wants ultimate success, but being able to manage everyone's expectations and talk about what this could look like if we do things right, while also being, this is where we are. And if we want to be here, things need to change and that's going to take time. Um, so I would say managing expectations. Um, I think staying Staying composed is a challenge in coaching. Um, it is a an emotional roller coaster of a profession, mm -hmm. and oftentimes you will encounter really high highs, like phenomenal moments that are just amazing to be a part of. And in those moments, you think you're the world's best person, or you think that man, aren't you the luckiest man in the world? And then the next day, you might experience something at the total other end of the spectrum. And if you allow yourself to go back and forth, it's going to be exhausting. It's going to be draining. It's going to be so demoralizing. But if you can find a way to stay consistent and composed throughout and maybe enjoy the moments a little bit and maybe be affected a little bit, but, you know, stay relatively central in that, I think that that is a challenge. Um, and it's definitely something that I struggled with early on in my career. And one of the biggest compliments I got was when I started working at William & Mary a year or so in, our strength and conditioning coach was like, you're just here. And initially I was so annoyed. I was like, no, I'm pretty like into this. I enjoy it. And then I was like, no, you're right. Whether we're winning or we're losing, I'm not yelling at the umpires. I'm not berating our players. I'm not whatever. And I had to allow myself to enjoy our moments, the big moments that we had a little bit more because I think by being composed, at times you can appear detached. Mm. You have to be able to be composed and connected because ultimately it's a relationship-oriented profession. And if you are composed and detached, well, then you don't look like you're a part of what's going on. So those would be two of them. And then the third thing I say is to stay current um, and to kind of keep your love of the sport because... If you take, let's say, an NCAA basketball season, 
It's like, I don't know, it looks like about 8,000 games from the outside. They just seem to be nonstop, go, go, go. So the opportunity, one, to stay up to date with what's happening in your sport and, you know, to see the opportunities for innovation and growth that maybe other coaches are using is tough. And two, to stay in love with the sport when you're in the grind of the sport can be challenging because if you allow the sport to become like a, a big weight in your backpack, and you're just being weighed down by the sport over and over, then you kind of lose your passion. Um, so one of the things that I've consciously done this year is avoided watching any collegiate field hockey because I wanted to be able to be fully present with our team. And if I was watching other teams get to do what we're not allowed to do right now, I think that would really bother me. But excuse me, in the last couple of months, the... Um, the International Field Hockey Federation, they have a tournament called the FIH Pro League, which takes eight of the best teams in the world and they play against each other. So yesterday I sat down and took an hour or two and just watched one of those games. So I was able to see what's going on at the elite level of our sport and just enjoy it as a spectator. And it's hard to, to do that when sport's your life. I mean, it's not like an accountant's going to sit down and look at someone else's spreadsheet as a spectator and be like, wow, look at the way their Excel adds up. And <laughs> the profession so it's hard to to separate your professional brain from your passion but we probably got involved in the sport because we loved it and yeah. keeping that love is really important one of the things um one of my current student athletes told me was that when she comes to practice right now and she sees me laughing that that's a really cool sign to her that we're allowed to enjoy this and i don't ever want that to be something that isn't a part of this um so I would say one is to manage expectations, two is to stay composed and connected, and three is just to keep your passion and to stay current. That's great advice, great advice. If somebody has a question for you down the road, maybe watching it on YouTube, something like that, what's the best way for them to, to get in touch with you? I think um, the easiest way is probably to connect with me on Twitter. And then um, my Twitter handle is on screen. and then I. When I have time, and um, maybe in our off season and stuff, I'm usually quite happy to sit with people and to talk. I think the opportunity to work in coaching as a full-time profession is phenomenal. So not to share that opportunity and share any lessons is, is a travesty. So please do reach out, whether you have questions about things we've talked about or other things in coaching, I'm happy to share. Great. Thank you. And if you're listening to the podcast, it is at E G G Z underscore and the word 11. Well, Mark, thank you so much for joining me. I appreciate sharing a little bit of um, you sharing a little bit of your time and, and insight. And uh, I hope people do reach out with questions uh, when, when they have them. Oh, thanks. Thanks very much, Tim. It's been a pleasure. But just a reminder, we have more interviews coming up over the course of the next several weeks. Uh, we try to do one a week, so be sure to subscribe either to Facebook or YouTube so that you get notification when we do go live. But on behalf of myself, Tim Backhurst, and Mark Egner, thank you so much for jo joining us.